Hello, everyone. Welcome to Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. My name is Victor. And I'm Chris. And today we will be talking about the Democratic National Convention for our eighth episode. In this episode, we actually want to start a series on Democratic National Convention, and this first episode will be primarily about delegates, who they are, how they're allocated, how they're appointed, and how they make it to the convention. So with that, Chris, you want to start us off? Sure. So we're going to start with just kind of the basic overview for this episode. Um, Next episode, we'll probably get into a bit more of the sort of nitty gritty stuff, but we're kind of going to cash in on that whole last dance series format. But to begin, all right, what is the what is the Democratic National Convention? All right. So generally, the convention is sort of the ultimate nominating body for the whole Democratic Party when they pick their candidate for president. Um, It's basically the culmination of the primary process. And during the convention, all of the people who are the delegates of our our national sort of Democratic Party, they converge in a single location and they formally vote to nominate the Democratic ticket, which is the people, the the president and the vice president for the upcoming general election. So this process, pretty straightforward. There's a nomination process and that's kind of what the primaries are built up and building into it how do we actually have these delegates that we've all heard so much and how do they actually elect or vote for a candidate let's just i want to jump in real quick here so this national convention that exists uh, it's actually a historical artifact so really in the past this was the convention that chose the the candidate we had people would have no idea going in. And in fact, there's been conventions where there's been a dark horse candidate that became delegate at the end of the day, which no one could have expected before the convention. So the whole idea of a convention is actually a very historic practice in the U.S. and has existed for hundreds of years here. Right. We're actually going to touch a little bit on that sort of the the sort of historical antecedents a little bit later. But um to touch on what these delegates are. So, cause everyone hears, you know, everyone hears the word superdelegates, delegates, it gets thrown a lot around a lot in the media, but it doesn't always get explained because w- when we think of the primaries, we think, okay, well, I go down to the poll, I vote for my candidate, and then, we, we, you know, everyone, wh- whichever candidate gets the most votes, obviously that'll be the person who becomes the ticket. But that's not actually how it works because there's a, a representative process. Um, so what actually happens is when you vote for your candidate, you're voting for your local, your state party's uh, delegates to pledge those delegates. And so that actually leads us to the next part is that there are kind of two classes of delegates. Uh, there are pledge delegates, and these are people who generally, at the most simple level, it means that somebody, some sort of body of people voted for a certain candidate, and then that delegate who who is representing that body of people goes to the convention and they have to vote for the person that that body of people selected. Now, uh, so these sort of pledge delegates, now they can be selected in several different ways. Obviously there's the sort of generic primary where you go and vote. There's there's also caucuses where technically it's sort of, you come together in a sort of mini convention at the state level and you all talk amongst yourselves and then you vote. And then there are also some sort of, they're, they're what, what are called sort of at-large delegates and uh, sort of party leader and elected official delegates that are pledged. And all of these pl- all of these pledged delegates, they are pledged to a specific candidate and that candidate has veto power over them. So those delegates only go to the convention if the candidate who they're pledged to approves of them. Right. And the important thing to remember, just to drill down a little bit, because there are several subclasses of these pledged delegates. I kind of mentioned that, but just to be clear, there are really three main classes. There are something known as pledged district delegates, and these are people who are elected or sort of distributed at the congressional or sort of state legislative district level. Then there are pledged at-large delegates, and these you could kind of think of like senators versus congressmen. So so these at-large delegates are kind of elected at the statewide level and then there are pledged what are known as PE or PLEO delegates or party leader and elected officials and these are people who within each local party of the Democratic Party because the Democratic National Convention is made up of state associations and then municipal associations so the leaders of these municipal and state organizations they will also within their party be told who they should vote for 
to a certain degree, we're going to touch on something that's a slightly different than that in a second. But so these three groups are what make up the pledge delegates. And when they go to convention, when their candidate, if their candidate tells them to, they have to vote for them, at least initially. But there's a second class of delegates, and these are known as automatic or more popularly super delegates. And these I'm sure everyone has heard of because they always make the news and they're especially made the news a lot in the last elections, in the 2016 elections. And there was a big controversy between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and Hillary got most of the super delegates and Bernie got a lot of the popular support. But what these super delegates is what I'll call them because that's how most people know them. These delegates are unpledged. They're not committed to any one candidate going into the election. They're kind of free agents. And when they go to the, elect, the, the convention, they, uh, they're actually no longer allowed to vote in the first uh, round of voting. We'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more. But the people who make up this class of superdelegates is generally um, people who qualify ex officio, which means by virtue of their office. So these are generally members of the Democratic National Convention, or National Committee, rather. So these are sort of the, the highest level of the party leadership. They're not necessarily people who are in Congress. They're sometimes just people who are uh, very committed to the day-to-day -day work of the Democratic Party rather than the legislative process. There's also the Democratic governors, any of them who happen to be elected at that time, any former Democratic president or vice president that's still living, and also any sitting mem Democratic members of Congress, so senators and representatives. Altogether, this group tends to only make up about 15% of the total delegate pool, but they kind of act, at least potentially, as a major swing vote, because as you can imagine, 15%, if you can get all 15%, that's a significant amount of the delegates, and if it's a close race, that could be a major, you know, swing. So, Victor, do you want to touch a little bit more specifically on the details of who kind of make up these two groups of, uh, of people? Sure, and um, as Chris mentioned, they don't have a vote for the president, but they can be influential in other votes. Democratic National Committee. And these are the members who have served in the current Democratic National Committee. So actually during the primary season, you also typically elect new members of the DNC, but these are the currently serving members. So these are kind of the old guard DNC in a, in a sense. Uh, these automatic delegates also include Democrats from Democrats abroad. And in particular, What's interesting about those representatives, they can only cast half a vote. Uh, these also include the Democratic governors of the 50 states. Any any governor who's a Democrat can be a superdelegate, as well as any governor who's a governor of a territory or commonwealth of the United States, for example, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, the Guam, District of Columbia, and America Samoa. In the in the case of district in the case of District of Columbia, it's the mayor, not the governor. Right. But so those those territorial and the Puerto Rico, and the, do they get to vote, I guess, in like Congress or any other sort of like the, to me, it seems a little strange that these territories, because as far as I know, they don't really have official voting rights in Congress. So are you telling me they get actual voting rights in the Democratic Convention, though? Yes. Um, so as I mentioned, the Democratic governors who even governors from our states wouldn't have a right to vote in Congress. but their state has a right to vote in the Electoral College, but the territories, they don't have a right to vote at all for president in the Electoral College. They can, I think their votes are counted as part of the total popular vote of the country, but their votes are not counted towards the Electoral College. In this sense, even though the United States uh, general election might not count their Electoral College votes, the Democratic National Convention is a convention of people, um, it's a convention of a party. The party is not a government organization, and they can decide how they want to structure their own rules. There's, there's some formal mechanisms behind that because, uh, because of how these parties have accepted state funding of, of elections. So primaries are the primary mechanism behind which there are some regulations of how parties nominate candidates because of certain requirements, because there is now state action being taken in how primaries organized and held but in general most of these are considered private actions with really no oversight by the government except for like transparency regulations and uh, requirements to like publish some of your donors and even that's a little murky uh further furthermore there's um all the democratic senators and house members who identify as democrats are delegates to the national convention automatically as well as the house delegates from 
several of the territories, for example, America Samoa's House Delegate, District of Columbia's House Delegate, as well as the District of Columbia's two shadow senators, which is an interesting position that actually has historic roots since the late 1700s when the U.S. was first founded. Uh, New territories before they became states would have shadow representatives, and this is a continuation of that tradition. Uh, lastly, for example, the House Delegate from Guam, as well as Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands, Northern Mariana Islands also has a vote in Democratic National Convention automatically. And the final group of superdelegates is something known as distinguished party leaders. So essentially, these are people who have risen to the very top of their of their branch of government in the United States. So this includes Democratic presidents and vice presidents current or former. So, for example, President Obama will remain a superdelegate to any national democratic convention for the rest of his life, as long as these rules don't change. Uh, and then this also includes Democrats who were party leaders of the United States Senate, as well as the United States House. So this includes Democratic speakers of the House, as well as Democratic minority leaders. And this also includes um, the Senate majority leader or Senate minority leader, whoever is a Democrat. Each of these um, uh, people gets one vote, basically. Uh, so if they're a currently serving senator, they'll still be in the as a superdelegate, but if they were a prior serving senator who's no longer in the Senate but was a prior leader, they would still have the ability to cast a superdelegate vote. But these categories do not stack, so each person can at most vote one vote. Okay. Now, do you want to talk about the voting procedures, as you mentioned sure. earlier, Chris? <laughs> sure, yeah. So these are actually a little interesting. Um, I think they're a little interesting because they've recently changed. Um, so historically, they're kind of been, I guess we're into a new phase, but you can kind of think of the historical development of the Democratic Convention really, I guess, in three phases. So in the first phase um, of the voting process, Voting was done by a two-thirds uh, majority. You needed to get two-thirds of all of the delegates to become the prime, the, the, the ticket holder. Now, and this, that continued up until, I think, the 1960s era. Some of you might have heard of the McGovern Commission. And we're going to touch on that in a later episode in more depth. But basically, that was a time where there was a large popular dissatisfaction among the sort of, uh, I guess, what would delay members of the Democratic Party, the, the non-political members who were just kind of the, the average Joe didn't really like how things were going with the selection process. So after some serious protests in the 1960s, uh, they changed the rules so there's no longer a two-thirds uh, vote, but it, now it went to a majority vote. But in that sort of phase, and that phase is run basically up until 2016 and the aftermath of 2016, it was a majority vote, but these automatic or superdelegates were also allowed to vote in the first ballot. And that meant that, um, so in the most recent example, that meant that Hillary Clinton, who didn't necessarily, I believe, have the most pledged delegates, ended up winning a nomination in large part. She had the most pledged delegates. Okay. So she did have the most pledged delegates. I think at least in the media, there was speculation leading up to some of the primaries that she wouldn't necessarily get the most. Well, but... the, the idea, the primary idea was that uh, people argued that these pledged delegates either discouraged people from voting in the actual primary election because their argument would be that their vote doesn't count anyway or for example that these pledge delegates like improperly like uh prime the people to think that someone's going to win just because there's a large number of pledge delegates following them but historically pledge delegates have never actually swung the outcome of or you mean super delegates have never swung sorry sorry i meant super delegates yeah so so historically super delegates have never swung the outcome of a of the democratic national national convention right when there but was it's definitely when there yeah, was some someone who had the majority of the pledged delegates yeah. but it's definitely been something that, that at least the the news media likes to to always spring up and we'll touch on something else they like to spring up a broker convention in a moment but keep that sort of in the back of your head because it, it is something that also is going to come up and you're going to hear a lot over time but so in the, the third phase so that was the second phase the sort of majority voting We've stepped down from two-thirds to majority, but we still had superdelegates voting. Now, the most recent change, and this is the current rules, is that nominations are by a majority of the delegates, but in the first round of voting, the only people who are allowed to vote are the pledged delegates. Now, this is 
generally the case is that in mo most of the time in the modern era, you can get to a uh, most of the time in the modern era you can get to a majority on the first first ballot um, for a variety of reasons. But essentially, we rarely get past the first ballot, and that means that most of the, going forward, these super delegates won't really vote on the presidential ticket. Now, as Victor alluded to, there's some other things like the party platform that they might have a vote on, but that's not sort of the big ticket item necessarily when we think of the Democratic National Convention. Yeah, yeah, just to add to that, uh, any the party can change these rules at any time, so these are just the current rules. Uh, in fact, this rule, new rule change was done for this convention. At any point, they can change it back to allowing superdelegates to vote again. Right. But so, and again, just to put it in context, the reason, as I'm, we've kind of touched on a few times, is that uh, the progressive wing of the party, after this sort of there was speculation and a lot of the way that the 2016 election went, a lot of people were suggesting that perhaps the Democratic convention, or at least the old guard, intentionally skewed things to disfavor uh, Bernie Sanders' candidacy. So some of this changes, at least as far as I understand, were kind of a compromise within the party based on the outcome and sort of the popular outcry following the election. But... As a result, there's another term, like I alluded to earlier, a broke convention or a contested convention. And what this sort of convention would look like is, say we don't have a majority on the first ballot voting. Then we're going to continue to have ballots until we find a majority because there are no plurality victories. You can't win unless you get to that 50, like, point, you know, 50 in a feather. Okay, so... If there were a contested convention, though, and the way that this might happen hypothetically is, let's say, rather than having what typically happens in a primary is, as you get closer and closer to the uh, convention, more and more of the candidates drop out because they just don't get any, they're, they're not even winning any delegates in the primary primaries, and so they know they have no mathematical chance of winning. So as more people fall away, two candidates tend to stand out, and one of those two will usually have a majority. And this can kind of be achieved also because... Some of those candidates who lasted a little bit longer and were getting some pledged delegates but clearly weren't going to be competitive, when they drop out, they then um, endorse one of the two frontrunners or a one of, one of the frontrunners. And because these candidates have their own delegates pledged to them, they can then transfer pretty much effectively those delegates to another uh, candidate. And this means that as you get closer to the primaries, uh, the, the convention, Typically, there's going to be two people, and one of them will secure a majority going in, and so there's really no question. But let's say you had a three, a, a strong three-person race. Then having a plurality becomes a real possibility, and you might have three contenders going into the election. And in that case, you might not have a majority on the first ballot. And then we get into the new rules where, okay, now pled, now these superdelegates can vote. And superdelegates, like I said, there's about 15% of the total delegate pool, so you can imagine... If those delegates are suddenly allowed to vote, that might be able, the, the, the thing that pushes people over the edge to, for one candidate to win. For example, let's say in some election year, the nominee with the most number of delegates actually dies or, for example, suffers <laughs> like a, a serious, like, let's say, injury. Uh, does, does the convention, in a sense, nominate them anyway? Um, and that's like a difficult thing for the delegates to think about but this is a place where the select the physical selection of actual delegates could matter and also for example uh this is the time when super delegates can also start mattering a lot because they control 15 percent of the vote so 15 percent of this uh contested convention vote all of a sudden goes into play immediately after the first ballot and the last thing to note here is that in a contestant convention, there is no requirement that a particular candidate actually be nominated. So parties have adjourned before even nominating a candidate for this has actually led to some uh, very strong breaks in Democratic Party unity. So, for example, uh, during before the Civil War, the Democratic um, convention adjourned. Half the delegates nominated Northern candidate, the other half nominated a Southern candidate. Uh, and additionally, these contested conventions, they can also nominate anyone they want. So they don't have to nominate someone who actually even was a candidate in any primary. They can nominate just, they can nominate a person off the street if they <laughs> so desired. Yeah. I have two, two final thoughts as well. So one, as I keep listening to this and 
it, it reminds me, so for some of you who might follow the, the papal elections, the way the democratic convention work is a lot like the way the Pope is selected, actually, is that you have continue, you, you need to get a certain number and you'll continue to have votes and votes and votes. And as votes, so if it looks like the two, the two front runners aren't going to possibly win because they're not going to be able to pull enough votes from either one, you might get a surprise dark horse candidate come out of nowhere. Now, yeah. I think this is more likely with the Pope because the the, co- the the papal conclave requires a two-thirds vote still. Right. I think this is a lot more likely with a uh, Democratic presidential candidate in the modern times because right. the rules only require a majority vote. And that's also just a, and a final word. So we've been using the word contested convention as well as broker convention kind of interchangeably. Now, I think the correct term would be contested convention, but broker convention is in fact one of those terms that its historical antecedents come from that sort of that, that first phase of the convention process where you did need that two-thirds vote because historically broker conventions were a lot more common and they were the sort they were they're called broker conventions because the idea that you should sort of conjured be conjured up in your mind is this sort of mustache twirling cigar smoke filled back rooms with these party bosses like think boss tweed kind of guys that that was what was going on back then and as you can imagine as we got further and further into the modern era and more and more elections were going to prime, like primaries were actually being elected by um, the popular group and not just sort of the elite party members. That didn't necessarily sit well. And then w- with the majority rules adoption, we've kind of seen broker conventions that kind of fall to the wayside. They're far less common than they once were. But the origin of that brokered phrase is because in the past, party bosses ruled sort of the party and they had their own sort of little feudatory states in different places. And they would all come together and broker a deal, basically. But anyway, Victor, would you like to tell us a little bit how the delegates are actually allocated in the first place? Sure. So there's a lot of different rules for a lot of different situations. So let's just start with the uh, foundation. So basically, the foundation is that there is delegate allocations for states, and then there is delegate allocations for territories and the District of Columbia. And actually, I would say the District of Columbia is special in the sense that since it has electoral college votes, it is actually primarily allocated as a state because in the presidential election, it votes in the same way as as any other state. So basically, first, um, to consider how many delegates a territory or a state gets, you first consider how democratic that state is. So basically, you take the average from the past three elections of the total popular vote for the Democratic candidate in that state. And this is your first number. So you take the Democratic vote for president in that state or territory, and then you divide it by the total vote in the whole country. And you don't just do this for the past election, you do this for the past three uh, presidential elections. For the states that are larger, for example, and maybe not have as many delegates in order to keep them entertained and also to keep them in play in the democratic convention not only do we consider the how democratic a state is the second way that jurisdictional elect um, delegate votes are calculated is by how many electoral college votes this state has so once again you take the number of delegate electoral college members this state has so this is the number of house of representative seats it has plus two which is the number of senators it has and you take this number and you divide it by the total number of electoral college votes, which is 538. For example, a state that's like Texas, it might be less democratic, but still it has a pretty large democratic say because even though the Democratic candidate does not typically win in Texas, uh, the Democratic candidate uh, still gets a lot of vote in Texas because te- Texas is a pretty populous state, as well as Florida and Ohio, potentially, although Ohio a little bit less. But for example, a state like California, where the Democratic candidate typically wins by two-thirds vote, and they're also a very large share of the Electoral College, this, in this sense, California wins in both situations because California is a very large Electoral College share, so it gets a very large number of delegates from its Electoral College share, and then it has a very large Democratic vote, so it gets an above-average representation in the convention because of these two factors are adding together, and California votes super democratic, so it gets a boost in its democratic representation in the delegate, in the national convention. 
So, so there's sort of a weighted electoral or weighted allocation process in that sense? Yeah, so basically these two numbers, the total number of votes the Democratic presidential candidate received in a state divided by the total number of votes the Democratic presidential candidate received in all states, uh, that's a that's a number between zero and one. Well, actually, it will, <laughs> it will definitely be less than one because all the votes won't happen in one state, but one is technically the maximum mathematically the maximum value they can have but it will certainly be much less than one and the other number that's also going to be certainly less than one between zero but strictly between zero and one is the number of the electoral votes the state has divided by total number of electoral college votes you take these two numbers which are both fractions and you average them and this is like your base representation for this state so then you multiply this by a number for example for this 2020 convention this number was 3200 and this is essentially just a number that turns your essentially proportion of how like much representation you should get to actual delegate counts so it, it's just a number that's used to turn the this average into number of delegates so then you basically multiply by 3200 these the average of these two numbers that i previously mentioned and you get the number of delegates your state has and so now that so now we know how many delegates your state has, which is generally a combination of how democratic it is and how populous it is. So the, so the next thing we do is we also need to consider the delegates for territories and uh, essentially other regions without electoral college votes. So in general, this is done in two separate categories: all territories that are not Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico. <laughs> so all the territories that are not Puerto Rico, which includes America, Samoa, Guam. Northern Marine Islands, the Virgin Islands, they all get six delegates to the convention, and they're all at large. So that means they're elected on a territory-wide basis. And then Puerto Rico is essentially treated as kind of an electoral college state in the sense Puerto Rico gets 44 delegates, and they are going to be distributed in the same way that I'll mention earlier as all as delegate distributions are for the states. And also as a side note, Puerto Rico gets 44 delegates is actually more than some states which can actually vote in the electoral college so for example connecticut has 43 delegates to the national convention other states have less so yeah what do you think about that because when i i'll be honest that that was something that during our research process i think you uncovered and when i read about it it kind of shocked me because one puerto rico isn't a state and two you would think that the people who are member like full tech like I, i wouldn't not say full citizens in the sense that i in Puerto Ricans, uh, I don't remember exactly, but I do believe they're they are full citizens. Yes, me, they're full yes. citizens. So, but they don't necessarily get a representation in the Senate and the Congress in the same way that a state would. But it, to me, it's a little shocking. Uh, well, I think it's. I, I think it's honestly, honestly, I've, I've thought about this. I think it's probably for the best. Uh, I think it's kind of trying to encourage uh, the population of Puerto Rico to be active participants in our democracy, and I think it's potentially good outreach from the Democratic Party, especially if Puerto Rico becomes a state at some point in our future, which it hopefully does. Um, <laughs> I mean, because there are, some, there are some reasons why Puerto Rico might not want to become a state, but in general, I think this is a good olive branch and a good, um, good way to encourage, I guess, to develop a good image for the Democratic Party in Puerto Rico for, for potentially future um, elections and also just in general there are still democrats in puerto rico who actually can affect people's lives and we shouldn't just uh leave democrats out in the cold simply because they might not have votes right. in a national country out of, out of curiosity i'm i wonder i don't know the answer to this but maybe you do do you know if puerto rico tends to vote more blue or votes more republican during the the primaries in the generally do so i don't know about the the comparison with how much Puerto Rico votes in the primaries, how how blue it votes, how many people in Puerto Rico vote yeah. in, <laughs> for example, Democratic uh, primaries versus Republican primaries. But I do know that actually there is a lot of overlap between Democrats and Republicans in terms of their elected officials in Puerto Rico, because hmm. there's also a large overlap between people who identify as Democrat or Republican, but they might they might be on different sides of the statehood issue of Puerto Rico. So uh, there's a lot of different overlapping um, parties because there's a lot of issues that political issues that Puerto Rico has that are not necessarily in existence in the United States as a whole. And in fact, I mean, 
the, the other day I actually found out that Puerto Rico has something known as, and this has been in law since like Puerto Rico became a territory of the United States, almost, almost since Puerto Rico. There's also the concept of Puerto Rican citizenship, which is separate from U.S. citizenship. So if you're born in Puerto Rico or your par- one of your parents is, has Puerto Rican citizenship, then you can get an official document from Puerto Rico that says that you're a Puerto Rican citizen. And this document actually entitles you to to some preferential treatment, actually in some countries like Spain, which have preferential treatment for um, Hispanic immigrants to Spain. Mm. So in this sense, um, it can be something useful and something that's unique about Puerto Rico. So now let's let's continue on. So we have these uh, this allocation of delegates. So a state's given a certain number of delegates, and this also and this further discussion will also include Puerto Rico. So now that we have a number of delegates, we need to actually determine if the, how they will be determined in the state itself. So the state is required to have some delegates chosen on a statewide level, whereas the rest of the delegates are actually chosen in district by district type of level. But before we even get to that, the main idea is we have a base number of delegates. So Puerto Rico has 44, Connecticut has 43, California has over 400 delegates. Uh, bunch of other states that have different amounts of delegates. So the idea is we want to encourage a dynamic democratic primary season. So we don't want to end it too early, but we don't want to discount the votes there early on. Right. You don't want to. So, so I guess it's the idea that if, if the people sort of the first mover problem where if people see one candidate winning a lot of the early primaries, they're going to start thinking if they're in the primaries with our later in the, in the calendar year, they're going to think, well, my vote doesn't matter anyway because this guy's already got all the votes there and he's got all the momentum. So, like, why should I go out and vote at all? Yes. Is that kind of the concern? Yeah, that's a concern. So the idea is if all the votes are voted on at first, so let's say all let's say a bunch of states have a bunch of delegates and the majority of delegates are already allocated and they're allocated to one person, there is no point in voting on later states because the candidate will already have received a majority. At the same time, if you are an earlier state, you might be able to swing the process in, in some candidates' favor because if every state still had the same number of votes throughout this whole process, and an earlier vote in a sense is a better is a more valuable vote because that tells other people that you should be voting for this smaller group of candidates because they have at least a chance of winning. Whereas, for example, if the majority of delegates wasn't apportioned in the first few weeks, then it makes sense for people later on to continue voting because then their vote could actually impact the result, resulting candidate who is selected at the convention. So in order to solve these problems, the Democratic National Convention actually gives bonus delegate allocations based on when the state votes and essentially who what other states have votes with. So basically, the, the later you hold a primary or your first caucus in a state, the the more delegates you will accrue in general. So a state which, let's say, holds its primary on in the first week of March will accrue less delegates than a state holding in the last week of March. And this is basically not necessarily a strict sense. So a large state holding early in the month might still have more delegates in just strict numbers. Later on, this is in the sense that you will gain a number of bonus delegates based on voting on later in the process. So, for example, there are four states that can vote before any other state, and these states are New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, and, as we all know, Iowa. So, Iowa actually can only vote by caucus. It is against the DNC rules for Iowa to vote by primary, because New Hampshire is the first primary. So, Iowa if it wants to vote early, it has to vote by caucus. If Iowa ever wants to switch to a primary, it would actually need to move down with the rest of the states. So in a sense, Iowa has an inherent interest in keeping the caucus if it wants to be the first state in the nation that participates in the yeah, primary. I'll be honest, that I'm, I did not know that until just now. That's actually, I mean, I always wonder because you hear a lot of people complain about the caucus form because it's not it's a kind of weird way to select your delegate because if you don't show up at the caucus, it's kind of hard for you to actually participate at all. 
Whereas in a sort of traditional primary, well, not traditional, but a, a standard primary, you just vote, you know? Yeah. Like you would in any other way. So actually the rules for the 2020 convention, they said Iowa could vote no earlier than the 3rd of February. So, and this is actually an exception for the rules. All other states can't vote earlier than the 3rd of March. So Iowa gets essentially a, a, an earlier by a month window. Then New Hampshire can vote no earlier than the 11th of February. Nevada can vote no earlier than the 22nd of February. And South Carolina can vote no earlier than the 29th of February. So all of these states, they have a certain exception before the start of the of the first real stage of the primary process. So these states are essentially have been granted an exemption in the rules because of historical reasons or other reasons. And it's in their best interest to stick to this earlier date as early as possible. So if it's no earlier than the 3rd of February, it will probably be the first Tuesday after the 3rd of February where Iowa votes. Uh, similar with uh, New Hampshire and Nevada. And South Carolina, for historical reasons, actually votes on a Saturday. So in South Carolina, I think there's an exception to the general trend. At least that's what it seemed to be this year. So once these four states have voted and we've gone into March 3rd, then we actually begin the stage one. In stage one, any state can decide to hold their primary, but you get no bonuses for these stages. So in stage ones, the amount of delegates you are apportioned is this previous delegate number that I've told you. So this previous number is called the base delegate number. Now, starting on April 1st, you can actually get a bonus in your number of delegates. So on April 1st to April 30th, if your primary election takes place in that in that range, you actually get a 10% bonus to your base delegates. So essentially your your combination of electoral college votes and your democratic vote total in that state is worth 10% more than in any other state that held their vote previously. Penultimately, in stage three, you, which is between May 1st and June 16th, you get a 20% bonus in your base allocation. So basically any state that votes in that range will gain essentially a 20% bonus to its total delegate count. And also, beginning on the fourth Tuesday in March, which in this year was Tuesday the 24th of March, you are given additional delegates simply for holding your vote at a time when other states that are next to you geographically are also holding their vote. I think this is to encourage, this is to encourage essentially candidates to campaign in those um, states or territories as a group so that maybe they can save on transportation costs or other costs that are associated with for example, instead of campaigning there, flying cross country. Right now, Victor, I'm I'm curious because to me, when I read this at first, and I was looking over this, it's it seemed to me as though this might have been sort of. I think a lot of people may have heard of uh, like Super Tuesday and things like that. Now, that kind of makes sense to me if there's clustering, which is what I feel like you're talking about right now. And if so, it seems like you're kind of stacking bonuses if you hold Super Tuesday later. And you hold it with the group of states sort of around you too, because then you would get the sort of bonus of uh, being later in the the year, and you would get the bonus if you had uh, sort of geographical closeness to the people who are having it. Is that something that happens? Can you stack these bonuses? So you can't stack you. The bonuses do not stack on Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday okay. is basically the first day any state without a specific exemption to the rules can vote in a primary. So there are no bonuses awarded for for having your state in Super Tuesday. Putting your state in Super Tuesday gives your state the benefit that they will be able to influence the conversation moving forward. So your state will have a good idea. The people who vote later on will have a good idea who has popular support. In a sense, your state will have some say in what candidates have momentum in the race and what candidates seem to be winning in the race. So that might influence people later on uh, choosing a particular person who might have secured more of the votes. This can be known as winnowing or essentially narrowing the field. So from a group of 20 delegate, 20 potential candidates, you might be narrowed down to, let's say, six candidates or something like that, based on their results in the first few elections. So in this sense, if you vote later on as a group, you get even more bonuses. And all of the territories of America Samoa, Guam, Northern Marin Islands, the Virgin Islands, if they vote essentially at the same time, then they also get this bonus essentially. Okay. 
so they're essentially by this i mean they're considered uh, neighboring states of each other so all those territories including puerto rico uh, in particular american samoa guam puerto rico and the u.s virgin islands they're considered neighboring states of each other alaska and hawaii are considered na- considered neighboring states of washington oregon and naturally and maine is considered a neighboring state of vermont and massachusetts I feel like the Maine, Maine being a neighboring state of Vermont, Massachusetts, that one makes a lot of sense to me now. I could see Alaska and Hawaii being grouped together, but I don't know if I really, I guess maybe for the sake of balance, I understand why they could be grouped with Washington and, and Oregon, but it strikes me as odd. And I totally understand the territory thing as well. That, that makes sense. It's just that Canada-Hawaii one, that's the one I'm, or did I say Canada, excuse me, the Alaska-Hawaii one is... uh. That one gives me a little bit of pause. If you get this 15% bonus, so you get 15% and it stacks with any other bonus you receive. So you can essentially get this bonus and you multiply by your base number of delegates. And this is your new number of delegates that your state gets to the national convention. So the later on you hold your primary, basically till uh, May 1st. So once you hit May 1st, there is really no sense to hold it later for any apparent reason. So but the reason why you might hold it later is so you can cluster these states together. That's really the only other incentive to hold it later. Or, for example, you want to have the last say. And I would say some states, they want to hold their primaries later due to not necessarily delegate selection tactics for the presidential candidates. So the later on you hold your primary, if, for example, your state has already determined who essentially before your state vote, there has already been a determination of who the national convention nominee will be because that nominee has secured most of the delegates or all the other potential nominees have dropped out. Then in your state, it's beneficial for the party leaders to know who to support so they get sent to the Democratic National Convention. So very late primary elections might be the result of Democratic National Convention uh, attendees being these party leaders. And these party leaders might want to have like an influence on a national level. The Democratic National Convention is a good way to network and to meet other Democrats. So, so there might be some incentive for these uh, party leaders to actually want to go to the National Convention. So there might be some incentive to have your primary very late on in the process so that the selection of delegates isn't really influenced by a particular presidential candidate. It's really essentially a party insider type of selection where they all pledge to support the presidential candidate because at this point uh, you don't get anything for supporting them or not supporting them. Well, I think if you tried to, if it was a clear who was going to win already and you supported somebody else, I think that the winning candidate, if they went on to win the general election, might perhaps not think so favorably of your state when they're making their policy decisions. Now, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that presidential candidates would hold grudges like that, but I also think, you know, I think that has to be something at the back of people's minds if they know that your state and your party leadership intentionally uh, didn't vote for them when they had a, had sort of the nomination sewn up. That probably looks bad. Yeah. Yeah. But if this... So, Victor... Oh, sorry. Continue. Yeah. What do you want to say? So, I was going to ask you, because it seems like we've covered sort of how allocation works. We've covered what the delegates are. We... We've kind of covered the basics, but I kind of want to know, do you think that this is a good system for nominating a presidential candidate? Or, like, you know, do you think that, like, what what would your ideal system be? Like, is this it, or do you think there's some a better way? Before we go there, mm-hmm. let me just mention two final rules of the delegate process. So, once you know the total number of delegates that a state will have, so the state has set its election date, and we know all the other dates of the states nearby who could potentially be clustering with this state, so we know the total bonus the state's going to get. So we calculate the total number of delegates, which is its bonus delegates plus its base, rounded to the nearest whole number, and then we look at it and see the total number of delegates. We apportion 25% of those, round it down to the state at large, and the rest of the 75% is awarded to districts within the state. And these districts are essentially decided by the state. And then lastly, if your state decides that it wants to be a maverick and have an election that goes outside of the rules, so for example, your state is, does not have an exception and has a primary earlier than the four states that 
than, for example, March 3rd, which is Super Tuesday, what happens is you lose 50% of your pledge delegates from that state. So, for example, if, let's say, I don't know, let's say, I don't know, just pick a state. Let's say Oregon. Sure. I don't mean to pick an Oregon. I'm sure Oregon's a fine state, but I've never been there. I think Nike's headquarters out of Oregon. That's a wonderful yeah. company. So, Oregon, if, for example, it decides to have a primary on, let's say, January 3rd, because it can, the problem is, one, the state will get 50% less delegates, and two, any de- any candidate who campaigns in that state who is violating the rules may not receive pledge delegates from that state, Period. basically. Oh, from that state. Okay, I was going to say, I was like, oh, wow. Well, actually, it's actually more severe. They may, they may not receive any votes from delegates in that state. And so essentially, if they if they campaign that state and win, their wins will be worthless because they won't be able to vote for them in the national convention, as far as I understand. Now, does that, so again, does, you uh, might not know the answer to this, but does that mean that those delegates kind of go up in that thin air, or do they automatically transfer to like the second place person who did follow the rules, or so on and so forth, until there's a candidate who followed the rules? Like, is this a Tour de France situation where the first 30 people are all doping and they get kicked out, so the number 30 guys suddenly the the winner so it appears that the uh, particulars of this i think will actually might actually be decided on the floor but it seems like the rules just specifically state that they can't receive a vote from those delegates i would interpret that as the particular delegates who are awarded to that candidate will not be able to vote for them in the actual vote for the president okay uh, the nomination vote for the president right right hmm I mean, you know, I'll be honest, coming, so, coming sort of back to the, is is this the ideal system to elect a candidate, I kind of think that, I'm not sure I love the penalization thing, I, I understand how there has to be some sort of order, and if your state's going to violate the order, then all the states are going to start doing it too, if there's no penalty, but... I also feel like that's a that's a fairly undemocratic thing to do too, because if the, let's say you know the state party, like it's the state party who sets the the, the timing for the the state primary, right? I mean, it's actually in some states is the state legislature, actually not even the party. But but either way, it's not the people of the state. It's not the it's not the average Joe who's actually the person who's going to want to vote in that primary or and go to that caucus. It could so, be, but, for example, in California, the average person can circulate a petition and pass a law <laughs> or even a constitutional amendment by popular vote. So I don't think right. that's necessarily true in every state. But some yeah, states but, sure. But I but I'd say yeah, by and large, the average person isn't really controlling when the primary date gets set. But the average person is going to see that their delegates might not get to count. So somebody might vote for a candidate that they very much believe in, and then that person's votes aren't going to count anymore. Well, like that doesn't seem fair. Well, yeah, that's to tell the leadership of the state to not vote earlier than they're allowed to. Yeah, but it seems like you're kind of cutting off like a hand despite a face there. It doesn't seem entirely fair. Yeah, I mean, in general, this whole process is kind of convoluted because we don't consider the person receiving the most number of votes. I think, I think even in a country that has a non-direct way of electing their chief executive, for example, even a country like Britain, where their chief executive is chosen essentially through an indirect process, the party leader that becomes a chief executive is still chosen completely democratically by the membership of that party. So, for example, currently in England, the the rules for the selection of the party leaders for the two major parties in England, I think even I think this even applies to the Liberal Democrats as well, but I'm not sure. Is once the party has agreed to some set of people that are eligible to be selected, then all essentially members of the party can then just vote on them. It's not like where you vote in in districts, and then those districts send delegates to some national convention who then selects the party leadership. So uh, this is essentially, I think, as a, as a result of how we actually choose our chief executive, which is through the Electoral College. And mm-hmm. because we choose our chief executive in this way, I think, in a sense, the parties are, in a sense, bound to continue that tradition. They're not so required. So they're seeing sort of a mimicry of it. Yeah. I would say so. I think this is essentially a way to create the Electoral College in the Democratic National Convention 
while also trying to make it more fair by giving uh, jurisdictions that don't necessarily have a say in the National Convention, an uh, actual say, sorry, don't have a say in the Electoral College, giving them a say in the National Convention to make it more fair. So like districts like American Samoa, Guam, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, the U.S. Um, Mariana Islands, for example, all those districts, the Northern Mariana Islands, that's what I'm saying, and the Virgin, Virgin Islands, all those districts don't have any say, I guess, in the Electoral College, but they do have a say in the Democratic National Convention. Also, for example, the Democrats abroad have no say in the actual Electoral College vote unless you've unless you're eligible to vote by by mail in a certain state from abroad, which not all citizens are, but a lot of citizens should be able to. But there might be some questions of eligibility, potentially, especially if you've never been in the United States but are a U.S. citizen. But those people still have a say in the DNC's process. So I think it's a little bit more fair than our current process and a little bit less disenfranchising. Okay, well, let, let me bring you back to the question I posed earlier then. Do you think that this is the best system? Or if you were the, you know, if you were the king of the Democratic Party for a day, what would your system look like? I don't know. I think this is probably a workable system. And probably, I, I don't know the particulars to... <laughs> well, I don't know. Better. I don't want you know. Like I said, the King Victor. I want to hear how how would you design without knowing the particulars. I want to hear your hot take on it. What what do you think would be your best system? Well, I I, I think we I think we should first focus on um, this interstate compact that is essentially trying to get the popular vote to be the deciding factor in how essentially the electoral college members of a state's essentially group are appointed. So instead of assigning the Electoral College just as the to the winners of the state vote, the state popular vote, instead of assigning them to the winners of the national popular vote, then basically even territories like the, the territories I mentioned, Puerto Rico, would still have a say in our selection of the president in this country as a whole. So I think I think working on that is more important than trying to resolve this process i think could you touch a little bit just so i don't i don't know if everyone might some of our listeners might not know what an interstate compact is in the first so place at all so could basically you that a little bit basically the idea is our chief executive should be elected in a and by popular democracy so they should be elected so the person who receives most number of votes at least to me makes sense that they should become president to some people it does not make sense in this country uh, but I think it does make sense that the the person who gets the number of votes becomes president. And so the idea is any state can decide how they apportion their electoral college members. So basically any voter in the electoral college is apportioned by the state where they come from. So the state can decide on literally any method they want to select that person. It's in the constitution that it's up to that state's legislature to find a method. And for example, if they wanted to, they could probably flip a coin, heads or tails, on, on choosing a certain member for a certain for a certain candidate. That's a possibility. So there's really very little restriction on these electors. So the idea is, can a bunch of states who represent the majority of electoral college come together and say, if this person wins the popular vote, they will get all our electors. If the majority of all states can do that, then that basically guarantees that the candidate who secures the majority vote in the country will become the president. Because instead of apportioning the electors by the winners of the state's vote, you apportion electors by the winners of the national vote, which means if the majority of electors are represented, the majority of electors will control the day at the end of the day. All right, well, let me ask you this then. What about the small states? What about the Democrats who live in South Dakota or who live in small populous states, I mean? So like South, your Dakotas, your basically middle America, these states that are not hugely populous, but they still have Democrats, even if most of those states also tend to vote more Republican overall popular vote-wise. But like, are, are you saying that basically only California, New York, basically the major cities should get to decide who our presidential candidates are every election? 
Well, or at least get to decide the candidates to be cho- possible presidents. Well, that's actually the opposite of what's happening here. With the current process, okay. I would say South Dakota Democrats probably have a larger say than they do otherwise because uh, a candidate winning South Dakota is a news story. People hear about that. This person won South Dakota. It gives them momentum if they won South Dakota. If you win a bunch of states that will never vote Democratic in our lifetimes, it still appears that you are winning. Uh, you're winning delegates. You are. You can. Right. You probably secure a large number of delegates in states that have exclusively voted for Republican nominees in the past few elections. So I think it does encourage Democrats to organize and to uh, and to essentially continue continue growing the party in states that might not necessarily have a strong democratic presence because it says that if you do get people to turn out if you do increase your democratic vote share you will be rewarded for that and in that sense i think it's probably a good thing for states that haven't voted for example for democrat in a while to maybe give them an incentive to build up their democratic party and the future potentially maybe the democratic party will start being more competitive in that state if it continues being built up I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, but what about this? So do you think that might contribute to increased polarization, though? Because if, if, like, if at least in the short term, you, you need to win the major heavily blue states, what, don't, do, are you worried at all that that might drive people to vote the most extreme Democratic candidates in? And then once you have to go back to a general election, it's going to be a little bit harder to capture, say, moderates or, or undecideds. I don't think you necessarily have to win necessarily too many blue states i think there's a good i think there's a balance for i mean i don't know if this is the perfect system but it's a manageable system and has worked has worked to elect president obama has worked to elect president bill clinton um there's been a number of presidents that have been elected out of the system Mm -hmm. i've actually studied and even thought about what the ideal system would be for this but it seems to produce some positive results, at least. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel I, I feel inclined to. I do think that, pro, per, for my for my personal opinion, I don't think a fully popular vote is the right answer, and I I don't necessarily know if, if the current system is perfect. But I, I do think that there needs to be at least. It seems like the current cultural sort of zeitgeist is moving towards a more pure democratic process more and more and while i personally don't necessarily agree with that i I think if the if most of the members of the party feel that way i think that that's kind of how our process should work that it should reflect that the way we elect people should reflect the way that we or at least most of us think that we should so uh, and it does seem to me like a lot of people at least popularly seem to feel the same way as you do that if everyone's voting, if most, if the actual people are voting this way, then that's how things should look. I just worry sort of like the whole, you know, Virginia plan versus New Jersey plan issue where small stakes still need to be relevant. And I do think there's some truth to what you're saying about the idea that maybe this is a way to incentivize those smaller states, the, the, the parties within those states to sort of drum up support, drum up excitement, find something to make themselves sort of relevant on the national scale. But, you know... Like I, I have to agree with you. I haven't I haven't spent too much time thinking of the ideal system myself either. But, but you know, it's a tricky question. You know, I think if if we do manage to adopt a uh, like a national like level popular vote for president, I think maybe something the Democratic Party can move towards is essentially by default avoiding the presidential nomination to the person who secures the most number of let's say, Democratic presidential votes in the primary. And if they don't secure the majority by plurality, then we can go, we can fall back on this delegate selection process. Maybe that, that that's that that's actually does sound like a pretty good compromise in a lot of ways. So, hmm. well, Victor, do you have any more thoughts on, on this part of the, the sort of Democratic convention, sort of the basics of the, the presidential nominating process? You know. Well, I think this covers the basics. I think in the next few weeks we'll talk about how presidential candidates could potentially be selected we're going to talk a little bit more about some convention rules it, i think we'll talk about the procedures of the 2020 convention some minute details on how for example delegates are 
chosen, whether they were chosen correctly, can somewhat challenge their selection, how particular people are chosen to be delegates. Uh, the party's very keen on affirmative action. We're going to talk about affirmative action plans. And we'll also talk about the more general things the, the convention does that you might have not heard about. For example, the convention sets the party, uh, essentially the party's national agenda through the party platform for the next four years. And we'll talk about some past events that have led to, led to some reforms in these democratic conventions. Anything you want to add, mm -hmm. Chris? Um, actually, now that we mentioned that, there is one correction I want to make. I think I said earlier in the episode that the McGovern Commission is sort of when we move to the two from the two thirds rule to the majority rule. Now, I I, I made a mistake. I, you know, it's a little rusty. So that the McGovern Commission didn't change the two thirds rule. So the the two thirds rule was changed uh, during the 1936 convention, um, and apparently, so that was done mainly in response to so. Roosevelt, uh, FDR, uh, not not Teddy, uh, <laughs> ended up winning with massive support. I mean, if you ever get a chance to look at the electoral map of Roosevelt's victories, he basically, it looked kind of like when Reagan won for Republicans. He kind of cleared the whole board. Um, but because it was such a massive support, I guess it was a little bit easier to make that change. But yeah, just one correction. Uh, that sort of, I, I mentioned earlier, there were three phases of this sort of convention process. And I said the first phase ended in 1960s. That was uh, incorrect. It was in the 1930s. Um, but otherwise, I think I'm uh, clear. Thank you for listening to episode eight of Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. Uh, we hope you join us next time for when we go in more in depth on some convention details. Thank you. Have a good day.